Religion can be a very, very powerful thing. Religion can be a significant force in a person's life. Now, here's the definition of religion that I'm going to be working with as we look through this passage this morning. Religion is a human attempt to make things right with God or for living in a relationship with God. I'm calling the things that we've decided, the things that we've made up, I'm calling that religion because that's effectively what we're going to see as religion in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, one of the things that religion gets right is that there is a barrier between us and God, that something needs to be done to bridge the gap between us and God. But the point at which religion is dreadfully wrong is that it assumes that it can be done from our end, by our decisions, by our choices, by our religious activity. Now, on the surface of it, Australia doesn't seem to be a particularly religious country, certainly compared to other countries around our world. Uh, Some years ago, we went to visit some friends who were working in Spain, in the city of Cordoba, just in the the south of Spain. And Cordoba is a, a deeply, deeply religious city, and Spain is a deeply religious country. The statistic that stunned me, and it may have changed since we visited there back in the year 2000, but the friend who was working in an evangelical church there said that 94% of the population of Spain considered themselves to be Catholic and 4% attended church on a regular basis. Now, 94 considered themselves to be Catholic, but only 4% attended church on a regular basis. Their religious activity wasn't to go to church, They had other things that they did. Instead, they had religious fiestas. Uh, Very close to Cordova is is a tiny little town called Rotheo. And in Rotheo, they have a statue of Jesus. And every year, that statue is processed down the street. This is what the streets of Rotheo look like when they process with the statue of the Virgin of Rotheo. There it is in the middle. They, They couldn't get a picture that was big enough to show the crowds. Literally millions of people go there at this particular time of the year. Uh, In the city of Cordova, um, uh, St. Raphael is the patron saint. This is the Roman bridge that runs across the river in the middle of Cordova, and there's a statue of St. Raphael on the bridge there. Uh, There's statues of St. Raphael all over. But what stunned me was when we walked across this bridge, every single person stops and crosses themselves as they go past the patron saint, Raphael. Young people on motorbikes, uh, old people with walking frames, every single person will stop and cross themselves as they make their way across that bridge. Uh, Religion is deeply ingrained. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is not a shot at Catholics because every single one of us has the potential to be religious in that way. And, And Presbyterians, dare I say, have been masters of it throughout the centuries. But then again, so Baptists and Anglicans and Brethren and Uniting Church. See, the problem with religion is it actually gives us a feeling that we're doing something, that we're achieving something. It makes us comfortable, secure. And religion is very manageable from our end. If there's a ritual that you can do, a religious practice that you can adhere to, then you can feel contented. You can feel as though you've ticked that box. We feel as though we've done our bit for God. Well, in these two chapters of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at this morning, we're seeing Jesus 
confronting the religion of the day. Uh, By Jesus' day, religious activity in Israel was so entrenched that they can't even recognise God when he's standing right in front of them. Far from helping, religion has in fact blinded them to the truth of what it is that God is doing. We saw last week that uh, Jesus is not the saviour that they are expecting. He's the carpenter's son from Nazareth, the the panel beater from Dapto, who's come to save the world. And he's hanging around with a bunch of fishermen. But as we see in Mark's gospel unfold, the problem is that the kingdom is bigger and different to the one that they had imagined. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing goes way beyond anything that they could have understood from the Old Testament kingdoms. Now I want you to jump with me to chapter 2 verse 21. We're jumping right into the middle of the passage because I think these two little parables here explain what it is that we're seeing in these two chapters of Mark 2 and 3. These are the parables. Chapter 2 verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. I think these two little parables are the parables that help us understand what's going on here in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus hasn't come to stick a patch on the old covenant. That's foolish. If you put a patch on the old covenant, well, it'd just rip it apart. Jesus has come to establish a whole new covenant. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. Old wineskins have already stretched. You put more new wine into them and they'll try to stretch again and they will burst. Old wineskins just won't cope. You need new wineskins for new wine. Now what we see in these two chapters of Mark's Gospel is six incidents where Jesus is in confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. That's what the whole two chapters are about. Jesus being in confrontation with with the religion and religious leaders of the day. First incident there is there at the beginning of chapter 2. We saw the cartoon just a moment ago. Jesus has returned to Capernaum. He's in a house and people are gathered. It's so packed that no one can get in. The friends bring their paralysed man and there's no way to get him in to see Jesus because the place is so full. So they smash a hole through the roof and lower him down. Could you imagine what it would have been like to have been in that house packed in with all of those people when all of a sudden you feel something hit you on the head and you think, goodness me, what was that? And you look up and gradually a hole begins to appear in the roof. Finally, it's a hole that's big enough to lower somebody down in front of Jesus. Well, Jesus looked at this man and he knew what he needed above all else. And it's not legs that work. Jesus saw the faith of this man and his friends, the trust that they had placed in Jesus to do something. And then Jesus says this, chapter 2, verse number 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not what you're expecting. That's not what most people in the room would have thought that this man needed above all else. 
But Jesus knows that it is what this man needs. The teachers of the law hear this and look at what it says, verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's remarkable that they can be so right and so wrong at the same time, isn't it? I mean, they're right. It is only God who can forgive sins. But they're wrong because they don't recognise that Jesus is God and that he has the ability to forgive sins. And that's why he says what he says in verse 8. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Well, the teachers of the law would have thought the harder thing to say is get up, take your mat and walk. I mean, that's going to need some evidence to back that one up. I mean, if you say that to the man, well, he needs to be able to get up and walk, and that would be a tough thing to do. They knew they couldn't do that. But to say your sins are forgiven, well, that's just words. How do we know that his sins have really been forgiven? So Jesus says, tell you what I'm going to do. In order to prove that one thing is true, I'll do the other thing. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. People are stunned. But from the religious leaders, no response. More to come on that in a moment. Next thing that we see is some questions about fasting. Why is it that the Pharisees fast and John's disciples fast? Why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Old Testament law actually only said you were supposed to fast on one day of the year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. There's no other uh, required fasting days for everybody, but it had become pretty common practice by Jesus' day for the Pharisees to fast at least twice a week. It was kind of seen as a measure of your spirituality, of your devotion and closeness to God. But again, they didn't seem to quite get it, did they? Because the whole idea of fasting was that you were cutting yourself from, off from all of those other things in the world so that you could focus on your relationship with God. Well, Jesus has come. You want to draw near to God, you don't have to fast. You can go and have dinner with him this evening if you like. All you've got to do is ask. I'm sure he'll be happy to have you. You can sit down and spend the evening with him. Jesus is right there among them. It's a remarkable thought, isn't it? That if we'd lived back then, you could go and have dinner with Jesus. You could see God. You could look into his eyes. That's not an evening for fasting. That's an evening for feasting. Let me touch on two more examples of the wineskins being stretched at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, the passage that we had read for us. Uh, the laws being broken about the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples had been walking through a cornfield and they picked some corn and ate it on their way through. And the law even says that that's okay. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. If you enter a neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not use a sickle to, uh, to his standing grain. You're allowed to help yourself to stuff if it's just a handful that you're taking with you. So they weren't breaking the law. But by Jesus' day, these nitpicking Pharisees 
were criticising Jesus because they were working on the Sabbath. See, here's religion at its very, very worst. There was a law that God had given his people, but here's the Pharisees adding a couple of extra clauses to that, a few more little qualifications on what that law is. And it shows that they really just haven't understood the Sabbath. Jesus reminds them that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was actually made for our, for the benefit of man. But worst of all, they just don't get who this is, do they? This is God right in their midst. Back at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus says that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Now, he says, the Son of Man has power over the Sabbath as well. Second Sabbath incident comes at the beginning of chapter 3, a man with a shriveled hand. And this one really leaves you wondering about the Pharisees, I think. Because look at what it says, chapter 3, verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Isn't that pathetic? That they just want to see him break one of their rules. They're not interested about the crippled people or the unwell people that are there. No desire to see them healed. They just want to get Jesus. So let's read through it. Chapter, chapter 3, verse number 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched closely to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is not going to be doing this in private. He's not going to be doing this as some secret act. He's wanting to do this quite publicly. Verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And how do the Pharisees respond to this? Do they feel guilty because of what they've been thinking? Do they feel rebuked by what Jesus has just said to them? Do they finally understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do? No. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Just two minutes before this, Jesus has said, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? Well, they've decided killing would be the right thing to do. And they're going to plot to see Jesus put to death. Staggering, isn't it? The very ones who would have been praying and hoping for God to act can't even see it when he does. And as if to add to the irony, all the way through the chapters of Mark that we've seen so far, the demons can see who this is. Look at some of these verses. This is going back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is what the demons say. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out demons, but he would not let, them, would, would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
And then in chapter 2, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. The demons know who this is, but the religious leaders can't quite get it. One last example of just how damaging and numbing religion can be. We're told in chapter 3 that Jesus is called Levi, uh, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. I mean, it's bad enough that he's got fishermen hanging around him, but a tax collector, one of the most despised people in the society of the day, the Pharisees wouldn't even dream of having anything to do with with a tax collector. Their religion would forbid them having any contact with him, let alone eating a meal with him. But Jesus makes the blindingly obvious point to the religious leaders, it's sick people who need a doctor, not healthy ones. And the Son of Man didn't come to call the righteous people to be saved, but call sinners to repent. And that's the problem with religion. It blinds you to the truth. What do you think the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have been trusting in back in their day? They're trusting in their own righteousness. They're trusting in their own law-keeping ability. They're trusting in the religion that they've created. I mean, think about how they would have acted if they were Jesus in any of those circumstances. They certainly wouldn't have called a tax collector to be one of their disciples And they definitely wouldn't have gone into the home of a tax collector. And the man with the shriveled hand, well, they'd tell him to come back tomorrow when the Sabbath is over. We'll see if we can do something for you then. And they would have told the disciples to forget about their hunger while they're walking through the cornfield. Sure, the law says it's okay for you to do it, but we've got a couple of extra rules that we're applying here, so best if you don't touch that corn. And as for forgiving the sins of the paralytic, well, that just would have been out of the question. The Pharisees were people who trusted themselves, trusted their own resources, trusted their own righteousness, trusted their own religion. But worst of all, they're totally unwilling to trust Jesus. And so the question that gets raised when we look through passages like this is, where's your confidence? What is it that you trust? What is it that you think makes you right with God? What is it that you think maintains your relationship with God? See, I'm certain that absolutely every person here this morning has that capacity for religion to creep into their life. That it will give you that sense of security, that you're doing your bit for God. But the kingdom that Jesus came to bring in is not one where we trust our own devices, our own efforts, our own religion, our own righteousness. So here's the question again. Where's your confidence? What is it that you're trusting in? Do you have those little religious activities that you feel if you keep repeating them, well, surely that's got to be enough for God. He's got to be happy with that. I don't want to name what they might be, but I do want you to think about what they might be in your life. What are the things that you think make you right with God? Because there's only one, and that's trusting Jesus. 
Trusting the one who came so that our sins could be forgiven. The the one who makes it possible for us to enter into a relationship with God. Jesus came to bring an end to religion. He came to make it possible for us to be forgiven, to know God personally, to enter into the kingdom by trusting him. All that happens by simply placing our trust in Jesus, the friend of sinners and tax collectors, the one who calls sinners to repent, and the one who is able to give us what we need above all else, which is forgiveness of our sins.